0: Good morning. How's everyone? Good. What a beautiful week we've had. I find myself becoming more and more Canadian if it's like double digits. I'm in the backyard, no shirt on, trying to get that vitamin D. I'm like rounding up, it's like 9.8 degrees. I'm kind of shivering, but trying to get the, double, the uh, vitamin D. <clears throat> Can I read you guys a story <clears throat> to get us going this morning? Funny story. Um, This is from the New England Register, Uh, it's from 1986. An Ozzy Osbourne concert has been canceled after protests and threats against the singer's life. This concert was to happen in Tyler, Texas where the controversial British rock star was to appear on Saturday. Several groups, several groups, including religious leaders and city council and PTA members said Osbourne represented anti-Christian values. County Sheriff J.B. Smith told Osborne's security chief of anonymous threats against the singer, listen to this, including the use of fire and dynamite. The, the headline I would write is this, mid-80s religious leaders in Tyler, Texas threatened Ozzy Osborne with dynamite. It's Kind of weird. No one else thought it was? OK, my kids thought it was funny. Um, I just think this is such a clear picture of the knee-jerk reaction we have towards things that threaten us, even as Christians. Ozzy Ozzy Osbourne's coming to town. I guess we should pull out the dynamite. You hit me, I'll hit you back. You say terrible things about me, I'll say terrible things about you. We we have to come face-to-face with this reality. We often try to overcome evil with more evil. And this just... It doesn't work. This is, not what this, is. this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of the kingdom of God. Surely there has to be a better way. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What does Jesus have to say about this? What does the rule of God look like in situations like this? What does a disciple do when someone threatens our honor, wants our possessions, our time, or our resources? So what we're going to be thinking about and talking about is this idea of Jesus' teaching on violence or retaliation. So if any young parents want to grab their boys from the Sunday school room, I'll give you a minute. But I want to just take a second to tie this into the much bigger context of what we're doing here at Anchor Point. right? We talk a lot about, you know, Frank was just praying this, and Allison, as it is in heaven, we want to make disciples, we want to be people who, are, who look like Jesus, who are living life like Jesus would live his life. And I know, I don't know about you, you guys, but I need to be reminded of things very, very often. Like I have to set reminders on my phone. I have to ask my kids to remind me of many things. My wife reminds me of things all the time. I think you guys probably need to be reminded of things as well. So how does this teaching from Jesus tie into my normal, ordinary life? How does this idea of becoming a disciple actually impact what I do with my time, with my brain, with my body, with my money, with how I exist in this world? And you might be thinking, hey, dude, I've never threatened any lead singers of metal bands with dynamite, so I'm good. And I would just ask you to keep listening, okay? So what we're doing here at Anchor Point, excuse me, sound like a 12-year-old boy. The point of everything we're doing is love. To receive love in and through communion with God and express love through communion with God to one another, to other people. Or put another way, to become love. Or to use our discipleship goals to be with love, to become like love and to do what love does. This is the journey we're invited into by Jesus when he says, hey, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is this whole process where we're going to become love. So I'm not making this up. This is not wishful thinking. The New Testament goes on to say these few things. I'll just go through this quickly. Love is the principle on which all the law and prophets sing. Love summarizes the entire law. Love is the goal of all instruction and training. Love is how faith works itself out and the only thing that counts. Love is the way we know we've passed from death to life. Love is the way we are filled with all the fullness of God. Love is who God is. And our love is evidence we are becoming more like God. Love is the way that everyone will know that we are disciples of Jesus. Amen. So this, this seems to be something we need to pay attention to. And so we're brought into this bigger story um, and into this journey. Um, by God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, this perfect community of self-giving, other-centered love. This is the source of our reality. This is where we are heading. And what we see in the story of God is God is on this glorious mission of reuniting heaven and earth and God and man, that everything that stands between us, he wants to deal with so that we can live fully and completely with him. He wants us to remain in him, and he he wants to remain in us so this is the trajectory that we are on. We're learning how to move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. We're at the center of all of our existence. We aren't dependent on ourselves anymore, but we get to depend on a God who is love. And so you may be hearing this, and I want to just address, yeah, there's definitely difficulties along the way. How do we figure this out? This is the whole process of the rest of our lives. But just a few things to think about this morning as we think about retaliation. This has to do with other people. And how, how do we interact with, with those around us? I don't know if you've noticed, but you and I, we swim in an individualistic society. Meaning this, like, hey, I just got to look out for me and mine, look out for number one. And we so very often define ourselves separate from other people rather than in relation to other people. And when we do this, we're left with the, our primary instinct is one of self-preservation. And that's not all bad, but that's, that can't be the driving and primary way that we exist in the world. What we see with God is that our God is the opposite of individualistic. He is a a community of, of persons. Our God is Trinity. One God, three persons. They are defined by their very relationship to one another. The Father, the Son. You need the Son, or you need the Father to have the Son. You need the Son to make Him the Father, you understand? So these are deeply relational terms. So as we think about this shift, we want to shift our thinking from it's all about me so how do we start to think about we together? What does it look like as a community? The driving factor be, can become as we learn to live life with God, as we learn to live life in and through the love that we receive from Him, we can learn how to give of self and to sacrifice of self rather than just to preserve the self. So we are, we are invited to move from focusing on me to focusing on we. We're, we're invited into this process of less focus on ourselves and more focus on the other. Um, as we surrender to the King and His way, we are set free to love other people, even those that want to harm me. Um, so a simple definition of the type of love that we're talking about, that we're on a journey of becoming, a love that we ex- see exemplified in God is agape love, or self-giving love, other-centered love. I just I want to think about it this way. To love in the kingdom of God means to actively and creatively will the good of the other above your own. This is freaking hard, okay? Let me say it again. To love in the kingdom of God means to actively and creatively will the good of the other above your own. This is not easy, but this is the most beautiful way to live life. Again, Jesus is raising the bar for us, but he is willingly and woefully showing us the way. We can love only because he loved us first. He is showing us how life actually works in the kingdom of God, how life works according to his design from the beginning of time. Okay, just a few thoughts before we get into the text today. But you guys want to pray with me? Okay. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we want to um, just see you as you really are this morning. I ask for your help, Lord, as we go through this text together. Would you help what needs to be heard be heard? Uh, The things, Lord, that are just my own thoughts that have no real bearing, I pray that they would just fall away. But the things that you want us to hear, I pray that they would ring true to the deepest parts of who we are. Lord, we we acknowledge that this is a difficult thing um, to think about um, giving of ourselves rather than protecting ourselves. And so we pray, Lord, that this, this morning the atmosphere would be one of peace, where we could be open to receive from you. And Lord, we just pray that at the end of everything we say, everything we do today, that Jesus, you would be the name on our lips and that you would be glorified and lifted high. We love you. We're grateful for your example of what we're going to be talking about today. And I just ask for your help, Lord, to speak the truth in love, um, with clarity. And I pray that you would just be, again, just lifted up. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you guys have your Bibles, let's go into the teaching text. Excuse me. Matthew 5, verse 38. We read this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus continues with this familiar pattern that we've seen over the last few weeks where he says, you have heard it said, and he's making some reference to typically over the last couple of weeks, one of the 10 commandments. And here Jesus is actually referencing three different texts in the Old Testament. And this is where Frank gave up in Deuteronomy 19, 21, Leviticus 24, 20, and Exodus 21, 24. And don't lie. Many of you guys gave up sooner. Um, I'm looking at you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Anyone remember learning about this like in world history? Hammurabi's code, lex talionis. This is like the first law of civilization in general. And it sounds a lot like my house recently. Why did you hit your brother? Because he hit me first. You know, this is like tit for tat. Whatever you're going to do, I'm going to come back with you and then some. It would appear that the bent of our human condition is toward revenge and not towards justice. Maybe that's just in my, my house, but, but what we see, it, it, comparing this, this chunk of scripture to the last few um, things that Jesus is talking about, he does something unique here he, he, that he didn't do in the previous verses. Is remember, Jesus in this whole little p- portion of scripture is lay- laying out what it looks like to, to live a life that is, um, of, is righteous, that is, is lived in right relationship with God and other people. That Greek word was diakosune, or the state of one who is as they ought to be. And what we see here uniquely, Jesus is taking this Old Testament way of thinking, and it appears that he's just laying it aside. He's like, hey, this is what you guys used to think. I'm showing you a whole completely new way. He's not reinterpreting, he's just completely laying it aside. It's as if he's saying, this no longer has a place in the life of my followers, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. This is because at best, lex talionis, or that way of thinking, could keep violence at bay. That's the best thing it could do. At best, all violence can do is keep violence at bay. But Jesus's kingdom, we read and we're learning, is one where violence does not have a place. Simply because this, violence just breeds more violence. The New Testament writers are clear, the flesh just gives birth to the flesh. Martin Luther King Jr., ever heard of him? He says this, The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, beginning the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So Jesus seems to be laying aside this old way. And then he says this, like again, let's pick up in verse 39. But I tell you, again, Jesus, the rabbi, the king, the Lord, he lays down a new way for his followers to live. And listen to this. This is not an easy thing to hear or process. Don't resist an evil doer. Okay, so we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to do the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing, but we're also not supposed to even resist an evil doer. What? And the word here is antisteni. Can you guys say that? Antisteni. Well done. Trying to keep you engaged. It means to oppose, to resist, to set oneself against, to be hostile toward, or to show hostility. So Jesus is saying this, hey, do not take revenge on. Do not retaliate revengefully using violence or evil means. Don't react violently against the one who is evil. Or N.T. Wright, in his summary, says this, don't use violence to resist evil. What? Jesus is helping us with the real concrete details of our lives by answering the question how does the disciple of Jesus interact with evil people and evil in the world how do we do this and he gives us a two-part answer one is a negative thing and one is a positive thing it's very clear um i can't really make it say what it's not, like what it's not saying here he's he's saying you don't use violence don't use violence in my kingdom There's a negative thing. We do not resist the evil one with violence. So then what do we do? It seems like he's saying you get creative. You think about this differently. How do you actively will the good of the other above your own in this situation? He's saying this, be ready for an act of grace. And so in saying this, Jesus is not advocating in any way, shape, or form for passivity, okay? So if you're here thinking like, I just have to sit there and take it and I can't protect anyone and all that, that's not what he's saying. Remember, this is about becoming love and the opposite of love is what? Thank you, Scott. It's indifference. So Jesus is not in any way advocating for passivity or indifference. Or in the words of Preston Sprinkle, man, very smart, he says this, Christocentric nonviolence or Christ-centered nonviolence says that we should fight against evil. We should wage war against injustice, and we should defend the orphan, the widow, the marginalized, and oppressed. And we should do so aggressively, but we should do so non-violently. Or in other words, Christocentric non-violence does not dispute whether Christians should fight against evil. It only disputes the means by which we do fight. Jesus is calling us as his followers to courageously and creatively forsake violence for something better. Two New Testament writers have something to say about this. Paul in Romans 12, 17 to 21 says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Pretty straightforward. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on, you live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Here we go. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and 23, says this, For you were called to this, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So, Jesus proposes yet again a new way to actively, intensely, intentionally, and creatively overcome evil with good. He's not advocating passivity or indifference but to actively will the good of the other, even what Scott's gonna talk about next week, your enemy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. You guys still with me? You wanna use violence on me as I'm saying these things? All right, so let's think about this. Jesus is inviting us to this new way of existing and dealing with um, the evil in the world. He gives us four examples, um, and, and has I want to just briefly comment on each thing. So if you guys have in your Bibles, let's keep reading. <clears throat> Verse 39: "If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also." So we have to remember, Jesus' culture that he's speaking into is an honor and shame culture. And this is an interesting thing because what Jesus is detailing here is the picture of someone getting slapped backhanded, like across the right cheek like that. Like that's a dishonoring thing. And it, it, it's, it's something about your character and it's getting at like your, who, who you are as a person is being diminished. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, what do you do in this situation when someone is attacking or assaulting your character or your honor what do you do in this anyone else ever have that happen to them before people say stuff about you that isn't true or do things like that to, to threaten you what do you do do you use shame do you going to return or do you return shame for shame or do you hit them back what do you do in this situation <clears throat> Jesus gives um, a creative grace-filled expression of turning the other cheek Again, this is not an act of passivity. There's an act of courage that actually has to take place in that. Like you just got slapped. You just got dishonored. And you're saying, you know what? Because of who I am in Jesus, I'm so secure in who he says I am. I can come up to you and you can say whatever you want to say to me. That's fine. Go for it. It doesn't matter. I know he loves me. He is for me. It's not learning to love <clears throat> in the kingdom of God is not about your honor. It's about Jesus and honoring him as king. So this, this is only possible as we are learning to be rooted and grounded in the love of God. As we live in this place, this allows us not to be swayed by what other people think about us so much. We are secure in Christ and in his unchanging love. Jesus, we read multiple times, did not retaliate when his honor and character was destroyed. Matthew 26, verse 27, we read his actual literal face was slapped and he said nothing. He's on the cross and what does he cry out? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So Jesus helps us think about creatively, and this is not easy in any way, shape, or form. What do you do when someone attacks your character? You stand up courageously and you turn the other cheek. Knowing who you are and Jesus is the thing that matters more than anything else. He goes on to say this in verse 40. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, <clears throat> let him have your coat as well. Let him have your coat also. This is an interesting thing because guys back in the day, they wore a coat and they wore a shirt. And basically what he's saying is if he's already got your shirt, just strip naked and give him everything you have. Like just humble yourself. Who's, who's, who's laughing over there? Um, give, him, give him everything you've got, man. Give him all your possessions. And what you're doing is this active stance and courageously saying, you know what? God's the one who takes care of me. Matthew chapter six, we'll learn about it in a little bit. Like not even the, the Solomon and all of his splendor I know all those things. Jesus takes care of everything we need all the way down to our possessions. Life is more valuable than the stuff we have. Life is more valuable than our possessions. We see literally Jesus in Matthew 27, 35, after he's crucified, the, so, the soldiers actually divide up his clothes and cast lots and take what he needs. So love, trust that God is going to take, of all that, take care of all that we need, even down to our possessions. What about this idea of time? We see here, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. And if we're thinking about becoming love, we're becoming self. We're becoming um, self-sacrificial rather than self-preserving. We're thinking about others more than ourselves. We read here that love is completely fine to serve, to go that extra mile. That's where that phrase comes from: go above and beyond, do more than what is expected. Because your life itself is a gift from God. We realize this. Like man, I don't like everything I have is a gift from God. I can be interrupted by this person who needs, you know, my time or needs me to just sit with them and listen to them as they're processing something. So often we, we we're so um, concerned and it's good to be aware and, and self-care is good and all those things. But I think being able to be interrupted is one of the most um, beneficial things to our discipleship to Jesus. Because a series of, of divine inconveniences is, is essentially what the Christian life is. That's all it is. Just, I'm going to be inconvenienced by you. You're going to be inconvenienced by me. But in that space, we can learn what it looks like to love the other person. Time is, you know, something you can't create. It's that we're all working with the same amount of time. But how could you think differently about the time that you do have to serve those around you? He goes on when he's talking about our resources. Give to the one you ask and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love gives. We have to use wisdom here and discernment. This does not mean that you give away your life savings every time someone asks you for money. You do have to use some wisdom. But what we're saying is that I will give the best. I want to be ready and willing to give whatever I can to help those people around me. All that I have is a gift from God anyways, and I want to be ready to utilize this for the kingdom. The the generosity of God we receive and receive in Jesus is more than enough to spur us on to be generous with what we do have. So it's not about what I can keep. It's not about my time. It's not about my possessions. And it's not about what people think of me. It's about learning to think and consider and actively will the good of the other above my own. So, in the Preston Sprinkle again, in a first century world swimming in violence, in a land where Messiah meant militancy, Jesus, Jesus never acted violently. Whenever violence is addressed, Jesus condemns it. Whenever his followers try to act violently, they were confronted. Whenever Jesus encountered people who deserved a violent punishment, Jesus loved them. And in doing so, he left his followers with a nonviolent example to follow. It's about love. The way we respond in the kingdom of God is to actively, intensely, intentionally, and creatively overcome evil with good. Not passivity, but to actively will the good of the other above your own creative, nonviolent resistance, this is the way of the kingdom. I'm going to read you guys a story that illustrates this. It's really well written. It's a couple pages, but I think it will help kind of land the point. And then we're going to move into um, some more thoughts here about the cross. So this is called Mugged by Jesus by Jared McKenna. I was 18. It was my first year in university studying fine arts, I was coming back on the train and I had been reading Martin Luther King Jr. for the first time. I got off at Warwick train station. I was walking over the overpass bridge away from the train station in my typical ADD dreamland state. I thought of Dr. King's talk of the nonviolent resistance of the early Christians. I had hardly noticed the big guy in a dark tracksuit with his sleeves rolled up walking toward me. Still a couple of meters off, he loudly grunted something at me. I missed what he said. And a little shocked to have Jared's dream world interrupted, I quickly tried to piece together what he had said. I definitely heard the word money. Thinking he asked for a few bucks to catch the train, I got my wallet out. Bad move. Lunging at me with his fist clenched and other hand reaching for something in his pocket, he yelled, give me your money. Well, he actually said a sentence along these lines only with words you can't say in front of your mom. And at that point, a number of things went through my head including some other words you can't say in front of your mom. And a number of things flashed through my head that years earlier, Walter Wink, or sorry, years later, Walter Wink would put into words for me with such clarity. The split option, which is flight. The only thing about running was that I was wearing my backpack with all my art equipment in it. If I ran, this would make my getaway as, as be, at best, a fast waddle. Not to mention, he's huge, not hard compared to my towering five foot seven stature. The hit option, which is fight. Only, as I mentioned earlier, he's huge. Maybe I could get one cheap shot, and if he wants to have kids, he'll have to adopt. More likely, I take a shot at him, then he's unaffected, like a machine in a Terminator movie then that transforms me into a red puddle formerly known as Jared. I joke about it now, but there's nothing funny at the time. If you've ever been mugged or held up or threatened violently, you know the shot can be numbing. What next flashed through my head short-circuited my panic and crazy split-seconds plans of split or hit. The words of Jesus that Martin Luther King Jr. had been experimenting with. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you. The flash of those words in my imagination felt like warm oil over my head with the tangible sense of this is how God has related to me. For the first time in the situation, I felt grounded. I had already gotten out of my my wallet, so I reached in and gave him him what I had, which was only $10.00. You'd think he'd have known better than to choose an art student as his victim. I'm still not sure why, but I didn't simply hand over the money. I stuck out my hand and said, I'm Jared. Wide-eyed and with mouth open, he grabbed my hand and grunted, James. Surprised and confused, I said, no, no, Jared. And to which he, with a surprise to match mine, said, no, I'm James. Oh, oh, okay, okay. There was an awkward pause, and this was by far the weirdest passing of the piece I'd ever been involved with. I noticed his arm, the bruising that ran all along it, interrupted only by the scarring that rivaled a pincushion. James's arm was offered to me like an icon in an Orthodox worship service to contemplate the depth of his pain and all the desperate attempts to escape it. He couldn't have been more than a couple years older than me, and the next thing that hit me was the stench, like stale urine mixed with cigarettes, and as we stood on the bridge suspended above the freeway, James launched into his life story at a pace to rival the cars passing below. His words seemed to overtake each other, and then cut each other off. He said he was sorry to be doing this to me, that he he had been in a bad way, he'd been doing really well, he was on this program to get off the stuff, but then his mom kicked him out of the home again, and now he's back on the streets. I asked him to come back to my house and eat and have a shower and get a change of clothes. I tried to find him a new place to stay. Another awkward pause. Then through the middle of us both on the bridge darted a young woman in another black tracksuit with a bag under her arm yelling, go, go, we got to go. At this time, I didn't know if she'd been hassled by security guards at the train station or if she had stolen the bag, but it was clear that she knew James and she wanted to get get out of here fast. Wait, James, before you go, I shuffled in my backpack past art, gear, and textbooks to reach in and grab the little new testament I always carried with me. It's got my name and number in it if you ever change your mind about a place to stay. For the first time, since I was staring at the big guy's fist, it got ugly again. James got right up in my face and started yelling, What do I want a Bible for? I'm going to hell! His face contorted with an anger that, that had an intensity that explained his arm. And without even thinking, I found myself saying, James, we're all going to hell. That's why Jesus came. Now, I know that statement rate's low on the theological wow scale and maybe embarrassingly high on the theological cringe factor, but it's what I said. And what happened next, I think, was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. The big guy, who only moments earlier was ready to beat me up, if not worse, just started crying. I'm not talking one tear, sad movie crying. He burst out crying like a little kid does. Suddenly, the pain that was so visible in his anger, on his scarred arms, and in his situation seemed to burst like a floodgate at the news of God's love for him. As this big guy stood there crying, I honestly didn't know what to do. And in the same way that my response had put him off balance, James's tears now, now totally threw me off. I just stood there while his head hung, his shoulders heaved, and he wept. James didn't say anything more to me. He snorted to try to keep the snot and tears, and then he grabbed the Bible and started running. After a few paces, he turned, looked me in the eye, waved the Bible at me, and nodded. And then he kept running. I stood a long moment on the bridge, stunned, and then I picked up my bag, a bit dazed and continued along the overpass. And as I neared the end of the bridge, I saw his female accomplice jump into an already crowded, beaten-up maroon sedan. As she got in, she yelled over the music to the others, I got a bag! James ran up, and as he got into the car, he yelled over the music, I I got a Bible? They piled in, and they drove off. And I walked right past my bus stop. I just kept walking. James taught me that there is nothing that shows the world what God is like more clearly than when we love our enemies. Despite the reality that throughout the New Testament, the cross is not only how God saves us, it is how we witness to that salvation. I'm aware that enemy love still scandalizes many a fundamentalist and liberal alike. Who wants a savior who loves the enemies we want to kill? Who wants to witness to the God whose love falls like rain on the just and the unjust alike? Who wants a God who longs to heal those who have hurt us so they can hurt no more? Who wants a Christ who comes to us in the pain we want to run from? What we see in the Gospels, guys, is that Jesus himself lives out what he's calling us to. The cross we see and read and know is where the real battle was actually won. The war against principalities and powers of which Jesus Christ was victorious, where he triumphs over them in the most radical act of self-giving, self-sacrificing love the world has ever known. Amen. That's what our faith is built upon. Jesus willingly bore and suffered evil on your behalf and on my behalf. And what we see at the cross is this subversion. We see God's power disclosed in weakness the cross subverts, or maybe it actually sets things right. Or in the language of the Apostle Paul, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to us who are being saved. On the cross, we see God absorbing into himself all that we deserved and giving us what we could never, ever, ever earn. We deserve death, but we get life. We see Jesus turns the other cheek. We see that he clothes us in his righteousness. Take it all. We see that he goes more than the extra mile, but into hell itself on our behalf. And not only that, he gives us all that we could ever ask or need as he lays down his own life for ours. At the cross, Jesus triumphs over all that could separate us from experiencing and knowing what we were meant to know, communion with God and with one another. Jesus here, my friends, is working on a whole other level than our minds can often comprehend. He is showing us the way of self-giving, self-emptying, creative, consistent uh, love, the way of our Trinitarian God. So as we close today, we're going to take communion together. And I want us to think about the cross, to reflect on the way that God loves us and his call to us to let go of the need to get even. And to put all that effort into going out of our way to creatively, actively, intentionally overcome evil with good. Amen.